רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. If you think you are immune against biases after reading thinking fast and slow, then A, you didn't understand the gist of the book, and B, even if biases don't influence you, noise in the system will. What is noise? Wait for the conversation. Hi, and welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Roy Yozevich, and in this channel, I... speak with the most interesting and influential scholars from all around the world to discuss science, philosophy, psychology, religions, and intelligence. And my guest today is Professor Daniel Kahneman. Professor Daniel Kahneman is an emeritus professor of psychology in Princeton University. He won the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics with his lifelong friend and partner, the late Amos Tversky, and in the last 10 years, I cannot recall a single book on psychology, economics, or business that the name Kahneman is not mentioned. He is the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, another book in Hebrew, which is Rationality, Fairness, and Happiness, and most recently, Noise, Flow in Human Judgment. So Professor Daniel Kahneman, many thanks for coming today. How are you these days? Okay, thank you so much for coming. Uh, now, your book just came out, but I wanted to speak with you much before. So with your permission, I would like to start with a few other questions. So uh, there is a story, I think that I read it in Nassim Nikola Taleb, that in a social gathering many years ago, You were introduced to a physicist and he asked you, what are you doing for a living? And you explained your research. And then he just turned his back and said, I'm not interested in the psychology of stupidity. Now, is this correct? Is this a true story? Yes, it, it, it wasn't a physicist. It was a famous philosopher. But yes, he wasn't interested in the psychology of stupidity. Okay, so let's, from this story, let's move on to the first time uh, you were mentioned in Richard Nisbet's uh, memorial, and he said the following thing. Uh, Danny Kahneman was early in, uh, uh, he, he speak about Danny, Danny Kahneman, and then he said, Danny Kahneman was already in resistance shortly after arrival at the university, Amos informed Danny that Michigan researchers had shown people to be conservative Bayesian statisticians. Conservative Bayesian statisticians? Danny exploded. Human are not any kind of statistician. And this observation launched a research program that was transformed the field of psychology and ultimately the field of economics. So if you say that people are not any kind of conservative Bayesian statistician, Maybe, maybe 
the field itself, it is, after all, the psychology of stupidity. Maybe if we don't follow Bayes, maybe if we don't follow, you know, a past experience, something is basically about stupidity in this giant field. Well, uh, I don't think people are stupid. Uh, I just don't think that they are strictly Bayesian. The the whole idea of people being fully Bayesian or fully rational in the sense of decision theory um, is a non-starter. I mean, it's an impossibility. Uh, so the, the kind of inferences that are needed to have a completely consistent set of beliefs uh, is just completely impractical when you think about the finite mind. And the mind is finite, that doesn't make it stupid. Uh, it's limited, it uses shortcuts, but uh, who could say that people are stupid, you know, when they discover gravitational waves go to the moon and do all sorts of things. So uh, no, it's not the psychology of stupidity, it's intended to be, it was intended to be, the psychology of judgment and decision-making. And, and people in judgment and decision-making mo are mostly doing fine. Uh, when they, they do make predictable mistakes and the mistakes are highly informative and in some cases are also important. But by and large, it's a caricature of our work to say that its main point is to establish that people uh, are, are stupid or irrational. It really isn't. So basically, the, when I read your work or Dan Ariely's work, you basically shed a light on certain specific things or situations or scenarios where people are irrational, but for the general part, people do make rational decisions and do lead their life rationally. Would you agree? No. <laughs> uh, rationality, as I understand the term, is, is a technical term which refers to a logic and it could be the logic of probabilistic reasoning or the logic of, of decision theory or the logic of formal logic. And that's what it is. So that's how rationality is defined. And rationality as defined in that way is is impossible for a finite mind. This is what I was saying earlier. That the opposite of rationality is that people are not rational according to that definition of rationality. It is absolutely not that people are irrational. This is a word that Danarielli has used, but I never use it. I, to me, irrationality conveys very different things. Uh, it, and I certainly am really not interested in describing people as irrational. And this is not, uh, you know, people who read thinking fast and slow carefully. Uh, it's true that there is a lot of discussion of mistakes, but you should see that in perspective is that when you want to study a process, a psychological process, bringing it to failure is very frequently the way to understand it. So when you're studying memory, you do this in a lot, to a large extent by studying forgetting. 
And so it's not that people spend their time forgetting. What is interested is, is how they remember. But in order to understand how they remember, you have to study how they forget. So that is the, the line of research. You know, this the is way great. To see it. This is a great insight. Thank you so much. Okay, so this was question number one. Question number two was regarding your autobiography and your experiences with the late Amos Tversky. And let me just almost quote from your book, I have it in Hebrew. You said that I assume that more than half of the laughter in my life I shared with Amos. This is a great quote. And another quote that you said, another important thing that you didn't afraid to expose initial ideas, okay? Unique ideas that you didn't, uh, uh, not fully constructed ideas. And this partnership, this friendship with Amos and the ability to expose those initial ideas had a great impact on your uh, lifelong work. And I ask you as a young researcher, would you, do you have some suggestion about, you know, finding the right partner? Because like they say in Sesame Street, doing research together is much more fun than do is doing research alone. So can you give some, some advice to how you pick up the, your best partner? I think the only advice is to be lucky. It's not <laughs> It's not something that you can plan and uh, both things happen to you or they don't. And, and I was uniquely fortunate uh, to, to work with Amos and I was the only one who worked that much with Amos. So I was the most fortunate person in, in many respects, but you know, there is no, you know, it happened by accident like most things in life. It happened because there was an opportunity and both of us exploited it and it was good for our work, but, uh, but you cannot plan for it. But, but I think that what you said was extremely important. You, if, you, if you have a partner that you're not afraid to expose your initial ideas, this is, this is major. I think that is certainly that is certainly true for some people. It certainly is true in particular for me because I'm, I'm an intuitive thinker. And so my first ideas are often vague and I have the sense that I know something, but I don't know exactly. And, and, that, and what was happening a great deal in my interaction with Amos was that I would say something and he would understand it better than I did. That is, he would make out of my vague statement he saw clearly something that could be done with it. And that's, that's a, you know, it's a great joy and it's very lucky because in general, that is something that I've observed. It takes a long time for people to understand what they're saying in, in science. That is, you may have a formulation, but you don't understand fully the implications of what you're saying and of what you're thinking. That can take years. And, Slow hunch. And that process was really radically curtailed when working with Amos. So uh, that's part of what made us effective. This is great. Now, last question before we get to the new and fantastic book, Noise. In your recent interview with Michael Shermer, you discussed the, rep the replication crisis. And you mainly discussed priming, okay? Because you made priming like the 
the quintessential topic of the replication crisis. Now you wrote in an open letter in Nature magazine that priming is, and let me quote, the poster child of this crisis. And therefore all researchers, all researchers in the priming community need to take responsibility and start to duplicate or replicate their studies. I would like to go even further and say that in the general public, the replication crisis is mainly attributed to psychology in general. So psychology is the poster child for the replication, the, the child poster of the replication crisis. Uh, and it is mainly due to the fact that there is something, something inherently challenging in the field of psychology, because when we want to assign complex phenomenon like behavior, to one single parameter, whether the judge ate lunch or didn't eat lunch or, I don't know, we are doomed to fail. Now, would you agree that, that in the general public, people associate the replication crisis with the field of psychology in general? Uh, the, the whole idea that brought about the replication crisis started somewhere else. It started in medicine, and there was a famous, John Ioannidis published a very famous paper, and I think the title was something like most published research, most public, uh, most published research is false. And that, that was a claim about very expensive medical research. In, and I think there is a, a, a problem of replication. This, this is now spread over multiple disciplines. Uh, I would say that psychology may be unique in how it has responded to the replication crisis and it, in how well it has responded to the replication crisis. Because over the last decade, the standards for empirical research have changed faster than in any other decade in my lifetime, certainly. And there has been huge progress in, in improving the sort of the scientific credibility of psychological research. So the replication crisis has undoubtedly been a huge blessing for psychology. Although some people still don't speak with each other <laughs> in this yeah. field. Okay, so let's move on to your latest book, Noise. Now, if bias means that people lean toward one side or one solution, for example, some will prefer to hire only men or only women to job, noise means something completely different. On the same problem or situation, people will disagree with themselves, they disagree with others, and will do it in much higher rate than they think. So bias means predictable error. We can predict what the error will be, and but noise means unpredictable error. Is this correct? Not quite, because bias is not necessarily predictable. Uh, bias is just the average error, and and you cannot, in many situations, you have no idea what the bias is. I'm talking about statistical bias, not psychological bias. Statistical bias is simply the average error. And without knowing the truth, you cannot measure it. Noise is actually easier to measure. So neither of them is strictly predictable, but noise is easier to measure because you can measure the variability of judgments quite often without knowing the true score. 
So again, so bias means the average of the arrow. And if the bias is positive, people tend to overestimate. If the bias is negative, people tend to underestimate. Sometimes we can predict it and sometimes we cannot. So what is the definition of noise? Will, will you say that noise is like what we call in statistic variance or a different thing? Well, noise is, uh, as we speak of noise, noise has many meanings and, and it's used in many different ways. So we adopted the word noise because we adapted it from measurement noise. And measurement noise is unwanted variability in, in measurement. So it's variability that is not associated with true variance. That's all. This is what noise is. As we speak about it, there are so many different usages of noise that it's very easy to be confused. And, and the decision to use that word, we really didn't have much choice because we wanted to anchor the concept in the theory of measurement. But measurement noise is only one kind of noise. Okay, so again, in, in my field, I come from the field of engineering. In my field, we say usually the noise is distributed uh, 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 between all, uh, like the mean noise will going to be zero because there is no bias in the system. There is no way, let's say that I, I, I have a ruler and I want to measure something. There is no, why should I measure always more than the actual length? But when we don't, when we go from the physics world or the engineering world to the psychology world, sometimes we think about it differently. So could you give me as a, a bias? We know what, what bias is, but can you give me a, an, an example of noise in systems, in complex system? Well, uh, we don't talk about noise necessarily in complex systems, but noise... As psychologists know about noise, but they know about it under the label of reliability. So as we use the term noise and system noise, it's what psychologists are used to thinking about as between subject reliability. And what we call occasion noise is within subject reliability. So uh, that's the, and again, the concepts of reliability are applied quite broadly within psychology. They're applied to anything that you measure, uh, but anything that people do or say. Uh, the concept of noise is restricted to judge, as we use it, is restricted to judgments and decision making. So it's unwanted variability in judgments or decisions. Okay, so it seems that if the same problem is presented to the same person twice, and each time he makes a different decision, some, something must have been changed. So unless we are willing to say that this person doesn't follow logic, because we know from computer science that the same input going to yield the same output. So something in A and B must have been changed. So what could have been changed, the context, or there is another thing? Well, I mean, anything could have changed. I mean, the context could be different, but, but it's known, and I think that's extremely important, that just the sheer, the way the, the brain works is variable. And, 
And for example, the ability to remember sequences, I think Kahana, uh, I forget his first name from Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, he has established that there are sort of spontaneous fluctuations in the ability of people to remember series of words so that the success on one series um, on one trial is highly correlated with success on the immediately successive trial. And that's without any external change. In addition, external factors, very irrelevant factors, and influence judgment. So if American judges tend to be more severe on hot days than on cold days, that is within person noise because the, the weather varies for each individual judge. And, and of course it's irrelevant. So when we, when, when, when we say noise and after reading your book, you mainly refer to decision making, different decision makings that different people say or do in the same domain. Let's take, for example, the insurance industry. So you give a, I don't know how you call it in, in English. Undertaker. Underwriter. Underwriter. Undertakers or something. Else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Underwriter. <laughs> so you give uh, many underwriters uh, different scenarios, and all scenarios are real scenarios, and they and they need to evaluate uh, the the cost or the premium of the premium the premium for this insurance and this uh, evaluation will vary tremendously between people okay and what you say that okay some things or some factors are like you know whether he ate breakfast whether it's cold or night whether we broke up with his girlfriend but some things are much more individual differences People tend to be more conservative, more liberal, more conscientiousness, more openness, okay? So there is like a profound, we look at the world different. People, different people see the world in different eyes. And from what I read in your book, this is like the main source of different decision-making. Would you agree? Uh, yes. Uh... When we talk about judges, the example of judges is interesting and important. So there are three kinds of noise and you can detect all of them in judges. So one kind of difference that produces noise is some judges are more severe than others. So that the, on average, they give higher, longer sentences for the same crimes. So that's one source of noise between judges. Uh, another source of noise are the context effect, what we call occasion noise. But the biggest source of noise is, which we call pattern noise. I thought are stable characteristics of the judge which interact with a particular case. And I'll give you a few examples because that's a difficult concept. Judges differ in their tastes basically. So there are some who get, who really hate fraud. There are some who are particularly sensitive when the victim is an old person. There, uh, there are, and, and even 
there are some who are going to be lenient to a defendant that reminds them of their son or of their daughter. And that is specific to the judge. It's an interaction between the judge and a particular case. It's a taste. And it's that kind of unpredictable, very complex individual differences that produce much of the variability. And we think most of the variability between people. And in some sense, it's very much like personality. That is, we, we know that there is a limited capacity. In personality, the, the notion of a trait is like what we call a level. It's like judges being more or less severe. It's an average. But a lot of behavior that de defines personality is an interaction of the person with the situation. And we think something very similar happens in judgment. So again, because when I read your book, I didn't quite understand the difference between it, uh, between a, a, a explanation one and explanation three. So explanation one basically is the average. Like for, for example, conservative judges tend to be more severe than liberal judges, but this is just on the average. But, and we can predict this, for example, we say, okay, you are a conservative judge, therefore you're probably going to be more severe, therefore we might do something because we know that there is like a general trait. But, but, uh, but explanation three or cause number three says, okay, I don't know whether, whether your average trait is to be more severe or less, but your interaction with this very specific case, and I don't know why, made you act the way it made you do act? Um, this is not necessarily the case. I'll give you an example. So people may know about two judges, people who watch them for a long time, uh, that this judge tends to be very severe with young people. And this judge tends to give a second chance to, to young people. Now, that's an interaction. It's not an average because they can be equally severe on average. They're just severe with different people. So this, it's an interaction that doesn't make it necessarily unpredictable. If you see a case, if, if you see just a few cases, you are not going to pick out what the pattern is. But in principle, there is a pattern. It's just very difficult to find it. It takes many cases, many observations to identify the pattern. It's not that the pattern doesn't exist. It's not, this is not randomness within the individual. Randomness within the individual is that other kind of noise that we call occasion noise. This is stable within the individual. And therefore in principle, you could discover it, you could establish it, but in practice, uh, when you see just a few judgments, you're unlikely to, to find, to know the explanation. Which lead me, which I think leads me to the next question, because as you just said, noise is something that you only can regard or view as a statistical phenomenon that repeats itself. And many times we don't have enough data, therefore we assign or attribute many noise phenomena to bias, okay? so when I face like an unfair situation or 
something that seems strange. How can I distinguish between a bias and the noise? If, if I don't have enough data, of course. Well, when you're looking at a particular error, um, we're inclined to explain particular errors by bias. And we never explain particular errors unless outliers, extreme errors, we sometimes say, oh, that was noise. But when it's within the, the normal range of variability, we do not explain a particular error as being noise or distinguish between being noise and bias. Noise is observed, except for outliers, as I said, noise is observed when you see many cases. And it's, it's, a, it's a statistical phenomenon about groups of observations, about sets of observations. Bias is different in that sense in that you can recognize bias in a particular decision. That is, you, you might be able to predict bias in a particular decision. And there is no way, unless you know the individual very specific. I'm not being clear here. Individual differences, stable individual differences, in some sense, they're all biases. So if you have judges who differ in severity, you can view their severity or leniency as a bias. And, and even if a judge is particularly severe to young people, but not to older people, that's a bias. So the, the variability noise is produced by individual biases to a very large extent. Uh, but in any one instance, you can either be able to predict that in advance, and then you will always be predicting from bias, but you will never be able to detect noise in a single observation, unless, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a great outlier. Let's uh, go back to the Galton, Francis Galton Ox example, where we estimated the true weight of the, of the ox. So unless someone says, okay, this ox weight one pound, which is like completely outlier, this is noise, you know, if I say 500 pounds or 1,000 pounds or 3,000 pounds, this is biases. Now, you said something which uh, re regarding this, uh, this example, that many judgment, one case, the biases cancel each other. Therefore, we get an, a true, very exact estimate. But if I have one judge and many cases, the noise doesn't cancel out. So, so, I, so it's very important, this distinction. And if you could please elaborate on this, because I think it's well, tremendously important. I think there is a general misunderstanding of Galton's example and of the wisdom of the crowd more generally. It is simply not true that uh, averaging many observations makes them makes the average more accurate. When you average many observations, you end up with a bias because the bias is average error. So if people generally overestimate the weight of the ox, when you take a lot of observations, you will get a very precise estimate of the bias. One thing that is guaranteed to happen when you take many people or many observations is noise will diminish. 
but noise, so sampling and repeated sampling is guaranteed to reduce noise, but it is also guaranteed not to influence bias. The true bias is going to come out more clearly when, when you reduce the noise by sampling. So it's not a guarantee. Wisdom of the crowd people seem to think that if you ask many people, you are going to get the truth. You're not getting the truth necessarily. If there is bias, you're getting the bias. What is true is that because bias and noise contribute to the global measure of error, you're improving the estimate, you're reducing the global error by reducing noise, but you're not approaching the truth merely by reducing noise. In order to approach the truth, you must eliminate bias. Okay, so I absolutely agree with you. I totally agree with you, but would you agree that the Galton example, the, this very day in the fair, what we saw that out of, I think it was like three, 300 people, I think, I, I don't remember, that all that there wasn't a bias there because yeah. the estimated average were extremely close to the true weight of the ox. So what we learned since we had the true value that in that particular day, the crowd there didn't have a bias, bias. an overestimate or underestimate. That's correct. That's, okay. what, that's what we found. So there, there are really two, two aspects of the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, you can find if you know the true value and there is no bias, then, then uh, what, what happens is the aggregation of many judgments reduces the noise and it makes the aggregate judgment more stable. And that is true whether it, the aggregate judgment is precise or whether it is biased. In both cases, you are reducing noise around the average. So, but there is no guarantee that you will get zero bias by aggregating. Okay, and uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, there is like a, a, how should I put it? Uh, many people think, you know, because I, I am in the field of machine learning. I'm going to cover this uh, later on. And in machine learning, we usually say, okay, if you have the same input, you get the same output. And this is, unless there is a, pro there is a probability function there, but if you give the machine the same input, the same pictures, the same image, the same sequence of world, you should get probably the same output because the weights there yeah. just operate. Now, and from what I understand, and let's take the judge example uh, again, it's not just knowing the law. It's not just knowing, it's not just the logic. It's not just the intellect. It's about personality traits, like you said, and other things. And maybe we, you, we're going back to where we cannot reduce, we cannot reduce the entire behavior to rationality. We cannot derive our moral ethics from rationality because people are extremely different in their moral opinions. Okay. I mean, you you see, you started with machine learning, 
and you ended up with morality and okay and so so okay there. so my question is if many people say okay you can derive morality from rationality Sam Harris for example okay if you think about it you will come out to you will eventually come to the conclusion of morality you can derive the moral aspect of life from logic and many people say mm, it's not going to be the case and my question is whether the judge example show that that we have such a different aspect of different uh, uh, so many different people think differently and they all very smart people so there is the rational and there is something independent that there are the moral the personality and one cannot derive you cannot say or you cannot uh, influence one a severe judge to be less severe with logic you can't you can't influence a liberal judge to be more severe with logic Would you agree? Well, I mean, I disagree with so many parts of what you just said that I don't know where to begin. But the, the first thing is, I think it's a very rare, it's, it's not the common opinion that you can derive morality from, from logic. The common opinion is that you cannot derive ought from is, so that those are very different domains. And there is, uh, I, I think Sam Harris believes that you can derive morality from, uh, from you know, rational arguments, but not many other people do. There is something else uh, happening. Uh, and so given that I don't agree with the premise, no, I'm not sure what the question is. Ah, so, okay, if you don't agree with it, with the premise so it doesn't matter so let's go on to the way to the field of machine learning and in machine learning what we have is a bias variance problem and many people when they discuss machine learning models usually say listen there is a problem and there is a very profound problem in machine learning models that we learn on one distribution and then the data the test data the real world data It comes from another distribution, a different distribution, okay? So we can't learn, we can't train a model to detect cats because future cats are going to come from the same distribution that past cats has come from. But if we want to forecast the Bitcoin price based on what happened uh, three years ago, it's not, going to, it's not going to happen because the Bitcoin price right now comes from a different, from entirely different distribution than the Bitcoin price three years ago. So, and you refer to the different distributions in your book in chapter 10. So my question is, regarding the different di dis distribution, is this the same with human, where as human, we are trained or we are leaned toward one distribution and where we are presented with data from another distribution, we just cannot We just cannot extrapolate or we just cannot generalize. And I think this is a term generalized to the new data or to the new distribution. Well, uh, clearly in most situations when you're doing machine learning, uh, you have a holdout sample, but it's a holdout sample from the same population. So the distribution is in principle the same, 
and the bias variance issue that you um, that you raise, which is indeed raised often, is that there is a trade-off between the precision with which you account for data in the training set uh, against the accuracy with which you can predict the, the data in the holdout set. So that's the very the bias variance uh, framework. Now, uh, what else was there? I lost the I lost the rest of the question. So again, uh, is you are absolutely correct that we have test data and holdout data, but again, when we when we put or deploy those models in the real world, their accuracy tend to decrease because again, real world data or real world scenarios going to produce another different distribution. I mean, if the regime changes, then of course you cannot predict. So uh, the the ability, I mean, the you know the Bitcoin data are not drawn from a stable distribution. I mean that the so. Uh, I think it's obvious that if the regime changes in ways that are unknown to you, uh, that it's going to take some time, that you're, you're going to make systematic errors if you extrapolate from the past. Um, that, that I think everybody would agree with. But, but would you say that, may, that maybe the concept of machine learning in enabler or helping us making a decision-making is going to somehow eliminate noise because machine learning or those models are less susceptible to many noises that you introduce in the book, for, for example, the context? Well, in general, but any rule, as you pointed out, uh, any rule that is applied consistently uh, is going to eliminate noise. So that is true of simple rules and it, and it is true of machine learning algorithms. So that is guaranteed. The, the elimination of noise is guaranteed. Accuracy is something else. But uh, the, all, you need, all you need to know is that any algorithm or, or rule applied consistently is going to eliminate noise. Now, it turns out this is one of the big advantages of algorithms over humans is that humans are noisy and algorithms are not. And the impact of noise on accuracy is such that I think the main advantage, not in every case, but certainly with respect to simple models like regression models, the main advantage of simple models over humans uh, comes from the fact that the models are not noisy and the people are. And when you say noisy, uh, in this context, you can I replace the word noisy with consistent because the model will always uh, assign the same weight to each parameter? Well, I mean, consistent, yes. I mean, in the noise-free and consistent are uh, the Okay, now another question that, what is the role that intuition play in the process? We know ever since Malcolm Gladwell Blink, we, uh, we tend to think that not only that we make intuitive judgment, but in some cases, those intuitive judgment are better than other, you know, think through thoroughly judgment. So 
when we discuss or we think about intuition in noise, is intuition an increase noise, decrease noise? And if it increase noise, what can we do in, in, uh, in order to decrease the amount of intuition that we rely on in our daily lives? Well, uh, complicated question. The, one of the features of intuitive thinking is that it's, it jumps to conclusion fairly quickly. That is, and it, it doesn't use information efficiently because it, it jumps to conclusions and then it no longer really responds to information in a proper way. So that's uh, intuition, that the models of intuition are when, when you get enough information from a quick look, then, then it's going to be very impressive, but otherwise it's going to produce noise and it's going to produce noise because different people pre presented with the same problem are going to focus on different aspects of the problem. And, and the aspect they focus on are going to inhibit them from properly using other aspects of the information. So that introduces variability that when you have different people sampling information about the same case, but each one samples information differently or different kinds of information, different items of information, then you are going to get noise. Uh, so, and I think that, you know, one of the good conclusions of your book that noise is much easier to deal with than biases. And for example, in chapter 19, you introduce the concept of decision hygiene, which is a great concept. Could you please elaborate on this concept? Again, there are many concepts that help us to reduce noise in the system, but I think that, uh, that decision hygiene is a great one. Well, uh... When people, the field of judgment and decision-making has really been focused on biases for, the, for several decades. And when you think about biases, you think of ways of countering different biases, each bias one at a time. And that to me is like dealing with the disease. And you can deal with the disease either with vaccination or with medication. And vaccination and medication are specific to a particular disease. When you're talking about hygiene, washing your hands, it's a completely different proposition because when you wash your hands, you are clearly reducing disease, but you have no idea how you're reducing disease. You have no idea what germs you're killing and, and you will never know. So, Equivalently, we're thinking that there are procedures in judgment that are the equivalent of washing your hands. That is, it's, it's simply following good procedures, good hygiene. And we don't know which biases they're going to reduce. We don't know how they're going to reduce noise. But by and large, we know that these are uh, good processes. And what we, the way that we constructed that notion of decision hygiene, we focus on the reduction of noise, but we really believe 
that if you follow the surgeon hygiene, you will also tend to reduce many biases. Could you give me an example of such a procedure that we can yes. do in daily life so to reduce the noise? Uh, the, the basic example on which we rely in the book is the contrast between unstructured interviews and structured interviews. So in personnel selection, uh, un unstructured interviews is the, the normal process where people just converse with the candidate and try to form a general impression. Structured interview, when properly conducted, is that you have chapters in the interview. Each chapter tries to observe one particular attribute of the candidate. And you typically score the attribute immediately after you have asked the questions. And, and you assemble for each candidate through that interview, through the phases of that interview, you assemble a profile of scores on separate dimensions. They call them assessments. And only after you have all the information do you try to form a global impression, which typically would be a global intuitive impression because there is no rule about, we are not suggesting following a rule at that stage. And, and it is well known that the structured interview is a great deal more valid than the unstructured interview. Now, we generalize that idea that when, when you are approaching a decision, you can view the options in the decision as candidates, and you can apply the same logic that a structured analysis of the options in a decision is going to lead to better decisions than an unstructured approach to the decision. So that, that's our main example of decision hygiene is structuring. And a secondary aspect of structuring is that it delays intuition. That is, instead of in the unstructured interview, it's known that people form an impression very quickly and they spend much of the time of the interview looking for justifications for the impression they have already formed. Uh, in the structured interview, you don't waste time. You, you deal, you, you access new information throughout the interview so uh, you don't have you time delay, and you delay and you delay the intuition so delaying intuition until you have all the information is an important aspect of decision hygiene this is a great example so let me take you back to your first job in the israeli army the idf is try to assess soldiers are where uh, whether they're being suitable to become officers and you said and this is a great story that There was like a place where all the soldiers were, were, were taken, they were given bunches of tasks, and you had to evaluate them. And you said, and I, I think I quote, "You can see instantly, almost intuitively, who is going to be the leader, who is going to be the vice president, who is, who is the vice leader. And then three, three months or two months after, when the, when the officer school got the report, it has non-correlation whatsoever with your assessment. So looking back at your first job in the Israeli army, would you say that this was a noise and intuitive process that you had to be most structured? Well, 
certainly we had certainly structuring uh, would help in that case. The main phenomena that I described in, in that story was something that I've called the illusion of validity, yes. which is the very strong impression so that you do know who is going to be a good leader or not. And the striking thing that I talked about was that even when you knew the statistics so that you knew that actually you could not predict, you still got that intuitive sense of very high confidence that you can predict accurately. It's like Hofstede's law. The job takes more time than you think, even if you are familiar with Hofstede's law. Okay, so uh, Professor Danny, thank you so much for your time. I have one last question, one last question with your permission. Uh, you know, in the Israeli Jewish culture, we have two famous Kahneman. One is, of course, you, and the other one is Yosef Shlomo Kahneman, the founder of Ponovich Yeshiva in Bnei Brak. And my question is, uh, and he was your uncle, And my question, did you ever meet him or did he influence your life in any way? Well, you know, I met him um, when we came to Israel in 1946. He was there to, uh, along with my mother's family, wait for us. I, I had my bar mitzvah uh, there and he, he uh, taught me the, something about the sermon that I had to discuss. But I wouldn't say that he was a major influence on my life. He, he was a marvelous person. And, and he was, although he was you know, very extremely religious and so on, he was also deeply tolerant and, and had many friends actually were not religious. Um, and he was a marvelous figure. But to say that I was influenced by him would be too much. Wow, thank you so much. I see from your eyes that you're... Is it, is it just the, just the memory excites you so yeah. uh, and if you don't know who uh, Yosef Shlomo Kahneman is he's a founder of one of the leading yeshivas of the ultra orthodox uh, section uh, sector in uh, Israel and he ordered to uh, put the Israeli flag on the yeshiva every Independence Day which is a great thing which is a major in Israel. Professor Daniel Kahneman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your lifelong work. And may God give you much, you know, many more years of research and good work for humanity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.